Second Peter chapter three is the text that we're in now. We're starting a new chapter. We're finishing up last time, chapter two, where we talked about the dog returning to the plumber. Remember that? That's a nice topic to start off with. There it is. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Pray that your word would be clear and that your spirit would be working and that you would use the limitations of the speaker even to your advantage to bring glory and honor to your name. That we would be challenged here from your word that you would accomplish in us and through us what you desire to do. Thank you, Lord, for the, the truths that we are looking at dealing tonight, beginning tonight with your return. And I pray that you'll help us to grasp the significance of that and that it will impact our lives as you desire, desire it to do. And I pray this in my Savior's name with thanksgiving. Amen. When we're in Second Peter <laughs> chapter 3, I'm going to read with the first, thank you, first 10 verses. Peter writes, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, this question there kind of becomes the stimuli for this whole topic of the Lord's, Lord's coming as he's going to be discussing that. So that kind of introduces us. They, they come with their mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. But when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some men count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Let's, let's stop there. This is a topic that there are a number of, when I was at Wake Forest and the seminary there at that time, 
was a very liberal seminary, and that was this. This was one of the topics in one of the books that was really questioned by many because they questioned whether the Lord was coming back, and that those that kind of discussion was almost placed into the category of mythological with some, and so. But yet, it's a it's a real hope. It's a real reality that this world has not seen the last of the Lord Jesus Christ who came 2,000 years ago. The same one that came then is coming back. And that isn't a question whether it's going to happen. It is a fact. We know it's going to happen. And his coming is something that we are encouraged to kind of look for, to be ready for, uh, to anticipate, because when he comes, he's going to deal with some things and bring some things to light. Now, I have been kind of getting ready for this. I've looked at a number of verses that sort of apply his return to different groups. And so I just want to kind of go through several verses. First of all, his return um, should be an anticipation by those who love him. And for that, I've looked at Titus chapter two. So you might want to look, we are looking in Titus in the morning. And, uh, but in chapter two, verse 11, he talks about the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. That phrase, the grace of God, is referring to Christ's first coming. His coming is said to be that grace of God which has appeared. Notice the word appear there. It appears in that verse 11, and it also appears further down at the end of verse 13, and the appearing of the glory of our great God. That his coming is something that is visible, and is something that is manifested and can be seen. And uh, Titus Paul tells us that it said the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And the phrase "all men" probably is better translated to all humanity. That his salvation that he has provided that for all humanity came when Christ came. That that is the available sacrifice. That if anybody is going to appropriate it. That's the one, and he's the one that provides it. And so this statement of um, all to Titus that God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men has an effect. What that first coming of Christ has done, he says in verse 12, is first of all, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire. So that his coming has impacted us to live in a, a life that is godly, that is denying ungodliness, denying worldliness, denying self-centered living. And then secondly, not only instructing us to deny those things, but also to live, he says sensibly, that would be soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. That statement, the present age, we look at it and we we realize it's not the same thing as saying this year, it's an age, and God seems to measure his time not so much with months and days and years as much as he does in eons or ages. And uh, there's, there's a past age, there's a future age, but this is the present age we're in right now. And in this particular time, we are told to live like this, to uh, in 
to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously in this present age. But as we are living in this present age like this, we are to be anticipating his coming, his second coming. He came the first time he appeared and we are to anticipate and look forward to and uh, embrace his second coming. That's what he says in verse 13, looking for, that would be expecting, awaiting for the blessed hope. And that blessed hope would include the resurrection which is going to take place as well as one day we will reign with him. I have, where I work uh, at Lowe's, I have many occasions to talk to people about um, Elaine. Uh, we, we, a lot of people come through and they were in the military. We talk about the military and I tell them about my spent in Germany that I was, I was really blessed. I met this girl, Alplank, me and she had a Mercedes. We got married, we got to see 12 countries. But I usually, almost always tell them that she's with the Lord now. She died and she's much better off. And a lot of them say, well, I'm sorry about that, but that's not to be sorry for because she is better off. She's infinitely better off and she's much more fulfilled and she's, she's just, things are so much better for her now in heaven than they were here. And that's true with all of us in the sense that one day we will be resurrected and uh, that we will reign with the Lord. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And that's what he's saying here to look for and um, for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory, the majesty, the splendor of our great God. How do we describe him? How do we describe the one who created the universe and the galaxies? I was when I was eating today, I had my phone and uh, I forget now, I was looking at something dealing with the contrast of the sizes of the planets and the stars. And uh, there, there are some stars that are so much bigger than we are that it's almost like comparing a grain of sand to the earth. Just unbelievably, some of them are so large and so massive. Uh, and God created the stars and the solar system and the universe, all of this in six days. And he sustains it continuously. And this, this rover, this, uh, I forget now what they call it, that's going to Mars, that made this trip to Mars and sending back all these pictures and things. And it looks like a, just a dusty desert landscape with all kinds of rocks and things like that. He does all of that. And that's all, they, and it was done in one, in uh, six days. And he's, he's done that not only in Mars, but in all the, the solar system and all of the galaxies and all the planets and all the stars. And he's done that, it's marvelous. I mentioned this morning, uh, the uh, size of the moon and the exact size. And, and you know, you, you've seen the, the eclipse where the moon covers the sun and it covers it just exactly, exactly right. So there's no, there's no, uh, overlap whatsoever. It makes a perfect uh, blockage at certain places and certain times. And that's important. It's important for a number of reasons among the things that is it affects the tidal waves and stuff like that. Um, they were trying to argue in that particular documentary that I saw, they were trying to argue about the tidal waves creating tsunamis that did some damage in ancient civilizations. 
but they, in the doing that, they talked about the moon and the effect that the moon has on the tidal waves. And it does have a real big effect. And it's a very important effect. It, it really is, makes a big, big difference. We, we would have, the oceans probably would be stagnant if it wasn't for the moon moving and going around at exactly, exactly the right space from the earth. And another thing that they talked about was that, that in comparison to the rest of the planets, our moon is very large compared to all the rest of the moons and the rest of the solar system. They are very small compared to their planets. This one is very large and it's pretty close to the earth and it has just the right effect and just the right pull and everything. And all of that is planned by God and he makes it exactly right. Um, it's amazing. And so here is this one who uh, is the, the anticipated return, the Lord of glory who comes back uh, <clears throat> and we look for the blessed hope. We look for his appearing, the appearing of his glory and the, the, the glory of our great God. Just notice this also. This is so, so we, we struggle with words to describe this, at least I do. But we're appearing of the, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This way of saying that he's God and he's great. And his appearing is glorious. And he said in John 17, he wants us to be there to witness that, to witness his glory. And uh, he wants us to be near. And he has spared no expense to take care of everything that is necessary so that we can go. We have a, probably if, we, if it works out, a, a conference we're going to be going to down in Atlanta uh, in September. October, the beginning of October. And uh, when you get near a time like that, I know that Pete does that. He likes to get everything organized and everything schedules lined up and everything. But I like to have make a list of what I'm going to bring. And I try my best not to remember to bring a toothbrush and paste and a razor and my cell phone and the charger. Don't forget the charger and my laptop, you know, and uh, extra socks and underwear and handkerchiefs, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, but the Lord, um, he is, he is, he gave himself to redeem us and he provided everything necessary for us to spend eternity with him. And not just to spend eternity with him, but spend eternity on an intimate basis with him. We who are the, the, the wicked hell-deserving sinners that are rebellious are the ones that he has undertaken to provide for us so that we will be in his presence forgiven, cleansed, and sanctified forever with him. We'll have the same address that he does in the New Jerusalem. It's amazing. And he will be, he will have, the Lord will have a body with the nail prints in him and we will see him, we'll be able to talk with him. It is astounding, the vastness of, of the difference and the provision that he has made. And so here is the Lord. He's talking about seeing him, his great glory. He is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us. That redeeming us, the, way, the phrase there means to buy us back. That we were sold in slavery. We were, we were like a slave, really. And he bought us back with his own life, his own sacrifice. And uh, I honestly have a hard time with that. Because there's really, there's really nothing in me that's worthy of something like that. And there's nothing in you, really, that's worth a sacrifice like that. And yet he did it. And he did it 
for his purposes and for his plan. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And we already are the beneficiaries of that. We belong to him and that, that his plan and his provision is unfolding even as we speak and uh, it will unfold continually for the rest of eternity. And so this is the first, first return that he came, that uh, he came, gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. One more verse, one more part of that verse says, he came to purify for himself a people for his own possession, which means he came to purify, to make clean a people, clean us up and make us a people that were clean as his property. We belong to him. Not because we chose him, but because he chose us. That is astounding. That is astounding. And he chose us to be a people of his own possession, to be zealous for good deeds or good works. We, we mentioned that this morning. So don't, I guess one of the things that sticks in my mind is I don't want to belittle good works. I want to, if I want to be active in building the kingdom and being fruitful, uh, like the parable of the sower where you have only four soils, and only one is fruitful, the only one is real. You want to be fruitful, be part of that real, be sure that you're part of that real group that you've made your calling election sure, then um, just seek the works that God has for you, works that he's prepared before creation for those that love him and really seek to follow him. Pray about that. Make that a, a prayer. Um, the works are everywhere if we're willing to seek them and really to follow through with them. There's plenty to do. All right, secondly, another passage that I was looking at that not only talks about the anticipation that he is to his own, but also the application to the nations. This is another aspect of his coming back out will affect the nations. Matthew talks about that when he says, uh, Matthew 25, 31, but when the Son of Man, the word, the phrase, the two certain phrases, Son of Man and Son of God. Son of God seems to, to point to the similarity uh, of this one Son of Man as inheriting the like, likeness of his Father and the similarities of his Father as being like God. Son of Man seems to emphasize the fact that here is God who has become man. That he is definitely 100% man as well as 100% God. The son of man is a term that was used by the Lord for himself more than any other, any other term by far. And so it says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, I just, that would be something I'd like to see. That's going to be something worthwhile. And uh, that's, um, you're talking about things to behold. That's going to be something to behold. We just, we're talking about the turn of the son of man, Aaron and David. That's going to be Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit. Where does the Son of Man sit? He sits on the throne. And it's not just a throne, but it's a glorious throne. Or a throne of glory. And not only is it a throne of glory, but it is his throne of glory. It belongs to him. He's going to sit on that throne, the throne of his glory. And all the nations, we're talking about the nations, all the nations will be shepherded or gathered before him. And when he was here the first time, we know how the nations, the people mistreated him and they scorned him, but that's, that's going to change. The day's going to come. Even the Pharisees, when he talked about that, the day's coming when the 
but it's going to be reversed and it's going to be severely reversed and it's going to be then very late, too late to do anything about it. So the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then notice what he says, the king. So here, the son of man to these as he's sitting there on this throne is now their king. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is not a last minute thing. This deal has been in the plan and the works for a long time. And the Lord has been planning it for his children. And he's separating them now. And he's calling them to come to him. And those of you that have been blessed to my father to inherit. Because how can we inherit? Because it's ours through him, through his provision. Inherit this kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. So there he is separating, if you will, the nations and the peoples and the languages there. Uh, and separating them for uh, some for judgment, some for damnation. The third group, and I'm moving kind of slowly, I know that we need to probably speak up, is the appropriation of the coming of the Son of Man to Israel. And there are several passages, but I couldn't get away from Isaiah 9 6, which is the, the passage that we study so much at Christmas time. Uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous text. And uh, Isaiah writes that he, this is what, 600 some years ago before the Messiah, right? Isaiah writes and says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Now, that distinction is not an accident there. That distinction is intentional because there is a difference. First, the child, when he says born to us, by the way, he's talking to Israel, that's who us is. He talks about a child, he's talking about a person, someone who becomes is, comes into the human race and is born, and we know here in this case, born through the Virgin Mary. So this is a phrase that speaks of this one who is, it is humanity, being born into the human race. This child will be born to us. But then beyond that, the son, the son referring to what is like is God the Father, the son will be given to us so that he is delivered to the nation as the son of God to them, the Messiah, the anointed. And he is one that's being brought here. And we know that's these words referring to because in this passage, he's talking about inheriting the throne of David. And so here is this one, the child who's born and the son who is given. He is coming back. And the text here is it's astounding, really. It says the government will rest on his shoulders. You've seen pictures sometimes of kings that have their portrait made and they'll have these gold things on the shoulders with the little strings or hang, whatever hang. I don't know what they call them. They're probably, I'm sure there's a name for it. But anyway, that is a way of symbolizing the authority that's on his shoulders, that rests on his shoulders. And this one, the authority over the government is going to rest on the shoulders of this one. Uh, and these words, by the way, are beyond ability to really appreciate, I think. They're magnanimous description of him and they we stretch our minds to grasp how this can materialize and yet here he is in black and white it's easy to <coughs> it's easy to see what he's saying 
but it's not easy to comprehend it and how it can, you know, flesh out in reality. But these are things that are that are true. And so let's we'll look at them as he's talking. He says, this is the says the government rests on his shoulders, and his name <coughs> doesn't say his name is. <coughs> says his name will be called, which I think is is a way of saying that. The terms that are being used here are not just names, but they're descriptions of him, that they describe functions and describe something of, of his majesty, something of his performance, something of his ability. And because he's God, we're not surprised that these are very difficult for us to grasp. Is this, this physical being, this person, this Messiah, this anointed, Psalm 2 talks about the anointed coming. Um, this anointed is here and he's describing him in ways that are difficult for us to understand. But he goes on to say his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. By the way, some say it's two words, but I, I agree with this. Most scholars, including John, believe it's the same couplets, and I agree with that. First of all, Wonderful Counselor, which has to do with what? What he talks about, what he says, his wisdom, his counsel, marvelous counsel. We would study Sunday school. Pete's been going with that over and over again. Mm -hmm. That the thing that was the most powerful and the greatest influence of our Lord was not just his miracles, but more than that, it was what he said, his words, his teaching, his counsel. And uh, that time after time after time after time after time, they tried to set traps for him. They tried to cap corner him. And in every case, all the time, he always turned the tide. Massive wisdom, massive. And so here is this one, the same one, now glorified, sitting, coming, the city over the throne of Israel. And here is this one, the first way we describe him, his words, he speaks, and his speaking is great, contains great wisdom and great counsel. And uh, not like the current administration is having a hard time doing that. His wisdom is massive. And then secondly, he's called mighty God. And we know he's God, but evidently there sitting on the throne, his power and his might is going to be displayed in a way that will show the greatness of his person. And we know that uh, his, his deity, he, had, he was God. He's always been God. Uh, that when he was here on earth, his deity was, was veiled so that even though he is God, children could come and climb up in his lap, which means he's vulnerable. Um, he was vulnerable. Peter could, could take him aside and correct him, and then Jesus would turn to Peter and say, get, get away from me, Satan. Turn to Peter. He used that same phrase to Satan at the temptation, get away from me, Satan. He used it to Peter, get away, get behind me. Uh, Peter was brash. Um, I mean, here's this fisherman uneducated fisherman taking the, the sovereign of the universe who created everything aside to correct him, to, to set him straight. And it is, really is rather humorous, uh, but the Lord is that vulnerable. It is, it's, it's astounding how vulnerable he is. And uh, so he is called mighty God. And I think that means perhaps that, that we, we will be more aware of who he is then even than they were when he was walking then. Uh, the, the disciples said, 
uh, when he became flesh, that, that we beheld his glory, his contrast, that it was full of grace and truth, and that his greatness is seen in this contrast of that, that he was um, gracious, and yet he was also absolutely correct and true, sticking to the facts. Uh, there's no deceit found in his mouth. Um, even when it was uncomfortable, uh, he would say what needed to be said at the right time and in the right way. And many times it rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, the, the scripture does say, by the way, that if we uh, live godly life, which means if we live like Jesus, we're going to suffer persecution. If we live like Jesus does, that we, we said the things when they need to be said like he does, which I very frequently will, if there's something going on, I may kind of skirt the issue or whatever. Jesus didn't, but it does make, it doesn't build um, walls of affection when you are saying some things. And yet Jesus was, was loving and kind, and he said the things he said out of love, with a good heart and a good motive. And so uh, he's wonderful counselor, he's mighty God, his eternal father, um, which I think just speaks of the fact that we're going to be aware that he is going to be there forever. And it does say he's going to establish his throne forever. And so here he is once and for all from the father, the father being one who cares for people, having a loving um, concern for his children, taking care of them, providing for him. And he's, he is eternal in that sense. As I said, it's hard to put that into focus there, but that's what the text says. And the text doesn't, it doesn't stumble. It's not a difficult passage to see. And so here he is, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. He's going to reign over Israel and the warfare that they're having now, and they've had skirmishes and conflicts for centuries, but that one day is going to end forever. In fact, it goes on to say there will be no end not just to his government, but to the increase of his government. And there will be no end of his peace, the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. This is a picture of the earthly throne, the real throne of the real lineage, the line of David on that throne and over that kingdom, he is going to sit and he's going to sit and establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. I long for that because we don't see, we, we, I, I long to see righteousness in areas of government and things of that nature. It's very difficult to find locally or statewide or nationally as we are more and more, we're more receiving to be more and more corrupt and more and more willing to cut corners and to lie and be deceitful in order to get our way. And so, uh, this is this is going to be a, a, a good thing when he comes and sets up his government, the throne of his government, throne the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on, from that time of inception and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. So he's coming back. And he's coming back to for his own. He's coming back to relate to the nations. He's coming back to sit on the throne of David over Israel. One more verse, which is which Peter talks about in 1 Peter. Uh, what we can ask, what does this mean for us today, his coming back? What does the impact that have with us today? 
uh, here's Peter. And do you remember when Peter was writing his first epistle, he was writing to believers that were suffering. They were scattered about Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and they were suffering. And they were suffering great. And Peter was telling them that suffering is not unusual, but that that's going to end one day. This passage is a passage that talks about that. Uh, it says, uh, beloved, do not be surprised. This is uh, 1 Peter 4.12. Do not be surprised at the fiery, that's a, a strong term that speaks of, of, of uh, torturous uh, ordeal, at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. So here are, here are things that come that are coming to them and they are being tested as though some strange thing were happening, as if this is something unusual. It's not unusual that, that God's people are tested, uh, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, Christ was here, he suffered. And the enemy attacked him, the Jews attacked him, and everybody attacked him. But when he ascended to die, was crucified and ascended to heaven, they couldn't attack him anymore. And so they attacked his people, his church. And the anger of those who are his enemies now are aimed at those who are people, including us. So we don't suffer a lot here, but we may be suffering in the near future. But we see a small amount of suffering. But in China and other countries, there, and uh, in nations, the Islamic nations, Muslim nations, the suffering is much higher. But they will attack God's people because they can't get at Jesus. And that's kind of what he's talking about here. He says, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, the unveiling is what that means, the unveiling of his splendor of his glory. When he comes back, you may rejoice and not just rejoice, but rejoice with exaltation to really exalt and be joyful and happy and glorious. You may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, watch this, I love this, because the spirit of glory, of contrast, of greatness, the spirit of, of calm majesty and of God rests on you. That you are being, you're suffering for him, that spirit rests on you. And it gives a lot of grace to those who suffer at a time when they really need it. And it also is evident to those who are persecuting them. They can see the power that's in their lives and they can see the strength that's there. Uh, remember that in case you have to suffer, that God's grace and God's glory will rest on you and it'll give you strength. That's an important thing to do. So there we are. Now in this, the prelude, uh, I'm just going to read through it quickly. Um, the prelude to that that we didn't get into, but just started. Um, we're just looking at some pa other passages, but the prelude is, uh, he said, Peter writes, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing you this, verse one. Notice, first of all, and Peter doesn't talk a lot about it, but in this verse he does, that the people he's writing are called beloved. They were, they were those that suffered, and he's been very sensitive to them, but here he, he calls them beloved. Um, that says something about his heart, the shepherd's heart, and his love and his concern for the people, that he really cares for the people. He bothers to put this down. He bothers to formulate these things and to talk about these things and to refer to these things because he, he loves, remember what Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times he said that to him. And each time he said, when he said, yes, you're the Lord, you know, he said, I was your keep the sheep, take care of my lambs, you know, shepherd my flock, take care of that. But here he's doing that. 
He's loving the Lord and he's loving God's people. And so he's writing them, beloved, this second letter that I'm writing to you, which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, right? This is, this is the, the, the uh, kind of the purpose, if you will, he gives of this letter. What he's trying to do is he's reminding God's people whom he loves of some things that have already been recorded. They have written down, but it's good to be reminded. It's good. Uh, you were talking about basketball and going through the basics of basketball, the very, very fundamentals. Um, and I understand that. And that's very true. Who was the famous coach? And I don't remember his name. Uh, stood in the locker room one time and held up a football. He said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he started with the very basics there. And that, that's a bad illustration, but it just illustrates that you start at the very basics. And that's kind of what Peter is doing. He said, I want to... To, uh, to stir up. The idea of stirring up means to arouse from sleep or slumber. I want, to, I want to wake you up. I want you to think about these things. I want to arouse. He calls it your sincere mind. Your We looked this morning at the word unalloyed, and that's what it is, the word that you don't have an alloy. Alloy is a mixture, but I want your mind to be without that mixture, without that contamination. I want to stir up, wake up your genuine mind your real mind without the mind that has no detours and and i could get off in that because that's something that god's been dealing with me about is uh, how easily we have our focus shifted from serving the lord and honoring him to so many other things the parable of the sword is a barometer and i think it's a barometer that we can all use in our lives to see if there are distractions in there that detour us from being fruitful for him and uh, so uh, he says, I want to stir up your sincere, unhallowed, unalloyed mind uh, by way of reminder, that is by way of recalling some of the things that you heard and that you are aware of, that you should remember or that you should reflect on some of these things. And here's what he says, I want you to reflect on. First of all, the word spoken, and again, every word is important. And those ideas that when he talks about words spoken, he's talking about the literal speaking and communication of the word of God's truth, which just saying he's not, he's not being nebulous. He's not talking about having some mystical feeling. He's talking about some clearly defined communication that can be placed in words, whether they be words that are spoken by the prophet or written down by the prophets that are communicated. You see what I'm saying? It's not the word logos, it's the word for for word itself. And so he's talking about the words spoken or words published. Be mindful of those words. I'm reminding you of those words beforehand, these words that were spoken beforehand. And notice he covers both the Old and New Testament. He says, um, to reflect the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment, that is the New Testament truths, of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So he's saying, I want, we're not elevating one over the other. Both are from God. Both are important. And I want to bring you down to remind you and get you to contemplate and study and remember these things because these are important. They're coming from God. I want to remind you of them. I love you. I care for you. It is important. They deal with important issues in your life. It's important for you to know that. And uh, 
These are just, these are really important things. Revelation 19, I'm done with this verse, says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is coming back. And he's coming back. And his coming is going to be, for the world, it's going to be a rude awakening. But for those of us who are his, we're anticipating his hope, his joy, his anticipation. And I'm looking forward to that. And it's important that we be ready for that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you care for us. Thank you for the fact that you have provided for us, that you have not left us here alone, um, that your mercy, your spirit, your grace, your word is here. You instruct us in it. Help us to understand that. And help us to be looking for and hastening your return. I don't know all of the details about all the activities that are going to take place when you come, but I do know you're coming, and I do know it's going to be wonderful, and I thank you for it, and I thank you for Peter's passion here to encourage those believers who are suffering to look forward to your team, your coming, and to your, the splendor of your glory and your throne. Thank you for that. Thank you for the hope. Thank you for our blessed Savior who gave himself for us and the security that is ours because of it. I ask your blessing upon this week. And I pray in Jesus' name, thanksgiving, amen.